time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Guys, how are you? JT? Hey, JB, how are you? I'm doing well. A little, little warm, a little humid, a little smoky, but... <laughs> That's Southern California these days. Yeah, it's it looks like it looks like the hour right before sunset, just all day long. That's where we're at right now. Doc, how are yes. you? Yes, yes, I'm doing, I'm doing well. And uh, you know, the only thing I'll say about this unfortunate weather we are having is that uh, I think the smoke does kind of. Uh, shield us a little bit from what would otherwise be oppressively hot weather is it that's what i've read yeah that the smoke uh is actually reflecting some of the heat hmm. uh coming from the sun unfortunately not heat coming from the planet as it is burning like crazy it's surprising because normally wildfires are associated with the, the high winds yeah. and in this case it's so still which is why the air is so bad um, but yet the fires continue. Yeah. It's really bad. I'd rather take heat than smoke any day of the week. Oh, yeah. I yeah. That's well, terrible. You can't do anything. I've been cooped up in this house for days. Yeah. Yeah, you really can't. And that's on top of the pandemic, so I can't even go and get a run in or a bike ride in or anything like that. It's rough. Yeah. You want to, you know, you want to get out and um, exercise, tell the kids to get out, and but you can't. Are you uh, getting a run in? No, no, I wouldn't run in this for sure. And Michael, I won't ask you. Nope, nothing. Because even if there was no smoke or heat, I'm not sure you'd run either. Actually, but you've been biking. Yeah, I've been biking. You've been biking. I'm not doing it in this weather. Now, do you find biking to be a um, a good thing for weight loss? Or Yeah, it's core building and cardiovascular and calorie burning and uh yeah i think it's been i mean obviously it's exercise and i've done a lot but the um compared to some other exercises it's since it's all lower body for the most part some some say that it burns less calories than similar time um running or swimming well running is going to be your best exercise to burn calories there's no doubt about better than swimming really oh i oh i think because you're a big swimmer there's there's just no there's no doubt actually you do all three yeah, I do, I do do all three, um, but r- running's different. It's a high. It's an impact sport. Swimming and biking are low to non-impact. It's just it's v- very very different. I think. What does burn- impact have to do with calorie burning? Yeah. I think impact. I think impact has to do with your bones and your muscles and and what your body goes through. I may be wrong about that, but but that's how I've always viewed it. On a low impact sport. Um, you're not putting any stress on your bones or anything like that. I think it makes a difference. I also don't think you're working as hard, but I guess that all depends because if you look at the Tour de France and those people and what they're going through, they've got zero body fat and they're in great shape. Yeah, and obviously the terrain that you're on. I mean, Michael, you're a big mountain biker, so that is very strenuous and, and challenging. I would imagine that burns a lot more calories than someone that's just kind of riding down the bike path at PCH. I mean, I think there's, I mean, obviously there are ways to measure your calorie burns on all of these things. And 
I would say that, you know, good ride. You're burning well into the 3000s or higher in terms of calorie burns. And I think it just depends on your, your workout. I mean, if you're doing, sure, if you're running for like, um, you know, two straight hours versus yeah. biking for two straight hours, you're burning more calories, I'm sure, if you're running. Yeah, look, I, look, I, think, it, I think if you match minute per minute, yeah, minutes per minute. I think that like 30 minutes you can get a better workout running than I think biking or swimming. Um, I think it takes, for me, a lot more effort to get that euphoric feeling from swimming than I can get from running. Um, it's true. I don't get the euphoric feeling at all from swimming. Um, it's refreshing. It's a different kind of workout, but I definitely get it from biking and running in a much different way. Well, you you, got, you really got to get your heart rate up on on, on the swimming, and the, and the other thing on the swimming, it's it's also about technique and and not and not fighting, um, just to make the stroke. You want to be gliding in that water. You you you, you want to be going with a, with a six beat kick, um, and you want to be getting your stroke turnover. I think you know we're talking about weight loss during this time, and it's I don't know about you guys. You know, it's um, I mean I've been sort of steady so. It's been okay, but definitely, I think some people struggle with weight during COVID. They're stuck at home. They're they're don't they're out of their normal routines, um, which might include trips to the gym and and other activities. While other people, you know, they're not going out for those business lunches and dinners and the office birthday cakes and all that stuff. I mean, do you have a feeling one way or the other that's been better or worse? And now, Doc, you're in the office, so it's, I don't know that your lifestyle has changed that much in this regard. Uh, maybe less eating out with friends and such. I think it comes down to whether you're a uh, a mood-driven eater. Hmm. You know, if you're somebody who eats from during times of boredom. Right. Um, That's me. Yeah. I That's think a, which that, is a huge issue. Yeah. Mostly people that are that have a they struggle with their weight. They're eating because they're bored. They're stressed. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the counter is that. As you say, you know, we're we're in far more control of what we're exposing, what we're being exposed to from the standpoint of food than pre pandemic. You know, there's whether it's going to parties or dinner parties or work parties or, or you know, out to dinner. Uh, you're not you're, you have when you're sitting at home at all times, you you do have more control if you so choose to but that's exercise. my struggle the proximity of my desk to the refrigerator now mm -hmm. but uh, you can stock the refrigerator however you want yeah, whereas but, you can't say that when you're at work they're going to bring stuff in whether you like that you, whether that stuff's good for you or not yeah but that stuff for me is easier to to not eat at work i just here you just nibble throughout the day i also find emotionally it's hard i'm not really going out of the house um and i just find that i stress eat yeah. So, so I've gained weight dur during. Who's doing the grocery shopping for you? Well, my wife does, but I also will every once in a while I'll go to the store. And then like the other day, I just went and I picked up cookies and <laughs> chips, you know, because it makes you feel good. Hmm. I wonder I what the problem is here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you. You mean to tell me you guys don't have chips at your house? None. Not really. And no cookies. None. Zero? But that's because How we can made that a, be? we, I, we did earlier on in the in the pandemic point, but then recently we made a conscious decision. We actually started out on that whole thirty program, 
which of course eradicates all processed foods and especially everything with sugar in it. And so it forced us to convert our kitchen uh, stocking stock to you know only non-processed, non-sugar foods. So and that's a, no that's a radical. For those that of you that radical. aren't aware, I mean, that are, was radical. Are you still in that thirty days? We're actually finishing it up, and it's this week. And you stuck with it? Yeah, pretty that's, much. I mean, that's great. It's that's that's it's tough. tough. That's tough. When I say pretty much, I think I kind of we went out. Uh, to dinner one night, and I think I had a Caesar salad, which has dairy in, in it. You're not supposed to have dairy. Yeah, that's. But that's, you did this for a thirty day thirty days. period, so this and is not a lifestyle. Correct. Change. So then, so then, what we are already talking about because this is the last week is how we're going to transition forward. You know, what are we going to reintroduce? Is I this think, just you and your wife, or your children too? Uh, me, my wife, and one of my kids. Yeah, so you flip into a maintenance. Program. Right. We're we're yeah. already talking about how we're going to move into a more. Of a, of a maintenance phase, but our maintenance phase is definitely going to include, you know, abstaining from all, you know, ice cream cookies and those kinds what of things. What about foods. cheese? You guys love cheese. Yeah, we, we haven't had that. And uh, I think we're going to try to stick to remaining dairy free. Hmm. So, and Jay, you like dairy as well. Every time you have coffee at my house, you're like, do you have any milk? Well, yeah, that's not my problem. The problem is the two scoops of ice cream every <laughs> night. It's it's not the tablespoon of creamer. Um, <laughs> but no, dairy would be hard for me. Um, I like a slice of pizza for sure. Um, and diet slice are, of pizza. The bigger one is all the carbs in the pizza. Yeah, yeah. carbs. Oh, pizza. That's that. That's <laughs> the the best food on earth. So, Doc, how have you felt? Have you felt differently during this process? Um. I don't know if it's been as dramatic for me as it has been for my wife and my 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 daughter. Energy I mean, I levels, that kind of stuff. Did you lose any weight? Did anybody lose weight? I, they have, and I have only slightly. Um, energy level wise, yeah. I mean, I would say it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Where's alcohol on I mean, list? the thing is, is that I would say before I did this, I think it was really dramatic for my, my daughter. She was really on a, you know, different kind of a diet before this started. And so I think for, and, and I think for my wife too, I think for both of them, I'm, I'm really generally kind of a, I've always been kind of a low sugar intake type of person in yeah. general. So it didn't make a huge difference. I was going to say, you know, that is one of the things and anyone out there that wants to try something like this, you don't have to do the 30 days. Yeah. I mean, the Atkins diet is usually, I think, 14 days. And I've done it because I've got a bit of a sweet tooth, as anyone who knows me knows. Um, and the interesting thing about it for me is always that within two days, I, it, the cravings are gone. Yeah. You really, I, it's, a, it's like a switch that flips. It's... You know, I just I see a cookie. I don't I don't want it. It just doesn't it doesn't appeal to me in the same way anymore. And that's it's kind of scary because I, I can tell how conditioned I am when I'm not in that state of mind yeah. because I, I start foraging around for something, just anything. Um, but I think for someone that's just in that rut, doing these things breaks that that cycle. And then it allows them to ease back into certain things and be and recognize the behaviors and maybe control it that way. I think the big point of this is that we are in a time right now like no other and it actually can be used to your advantage because the hardest thing about any kind of a diet or lifestyle change of eating or whatever you want to call it is the fact that whatever your intentions are you go to your 
friend's place right. for a, for like a dinner party, and then you find yourself, you know, you can't eat anything they're serving, and right. now everybody around the table has a plate except you. It's it's almost impossible. Yeah, social eating, and so then you you don't go to those events, and that's that's kind of lonely. But right now you aren't going to any events. Right. No, that's a really it's a great great point. time right now. On the to, other hand, you know, push forward with these things. Like as GB is saying you have access to your own house, so that requires more control. And people were baking all the time. My, yes. Our house included. And so we've stopped all of that. We're not, we're not baking. We're not making breads. And um, so, that, yeah, that, that helps too. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> we were talking earlier about how you shop. I mean, you, you just told us about the cookies and all that. but Oh, yeah, JT made a great little comment that, was brought forward to him. <laughs> Poor GB, <laughs> like a tear in his eye when I brought yeah. this up. <laughs> well, all I said to him was because we said because GB was telling us about how he he just can't resist going down the aisle with the cookies and the potato chips. Yeah, the chips. So I just said, stay to the outside of the market. This is something that you know I've I always, love this. I love this concept. Well, I've always is I didn't make it up. But certainly, it's it's I've read this plenty of times. But the uh, you go to the outside of your supermarket, you know, the outside aisle. So you've got your fruits, vegetables, dairies, meats. And then you check out and you leave. Don't ever go inside the aisles. All that other stuff. It's the chips. It's the it's the soda. It's the alcohol. It's the cookies. The, the ice condiments. Cream. The condiments. Yeah, and it's all about processed food. Like processed I really like food, when yeah. when we're making dinner at home and I can look at the plate and realize it's a whole food meal. Like we we have chicken and we have vegetables, and uh, if there's a starch, maybe it's you know it's a carrot or a potato or something. So. That's what you sort of strive for out, well, outside of this, outside of the aisles. Well, I think the really, at least for me, even beyond the junk I may be eating, the whole pandemic, and then probably the last number of days with all with all the smoke, I'm I'm out of sorts because I'm not in a routine. You know, I'm used to swimming four to five days a week. I'm not and getting a lot of exercise, so I'm a little bit more carefree with my eating. And when the pandemic hit and the pools closed, you know, I continued on my ways and I didn't curve my eating. And so I think that's been a big factor for me. And it snowballs, right? Because the lack of exercise is going to change your mood. Yeah. Which then impacts the way you eat. You're exactly right. So, um, so I ramped up pre-fire my running and I was feeling great in my head. And uh, now the fires, I haven't been running and I'm like, oh. It just it does something to you emotionally, and it, and it, it's like the um, self self way of medicating self medication through exercise. Certainly for you, definitely for me. Yeah, no doubt I feel so much better after I bike or I run. Maybe or you swim. should get one of those. Um, what do they call it? Peloton. Yeah, that's it. It, it, seems like you, it, it seems like you go nowhere on those things. Uh, <laughs> but what's funny about that, it seems like life is like on a, being on a treadmill today. It's like the same mm -hmm. thing. Working from home, it's the same thing every day. That's why you're so fortunate, Doc. JT and I are working from home. You get, you get to go to the office. True. Although I'm probably, you know, not probably, I'm, I'm exposed a little more than you guys. So I have to be more careful, of course. We've we actually we, we've actually implemented even more policies to minimize our risk where we've got those uh, for what it's worth. We've got those air purifiers now in every room in the office to uh, try and, you know, suck out viral particles in the uh, airspace. 
Oh, that's interesting. You know what? Our air conditioning broke in the house earlier this year, and we put in an air sanitizer in the house. Mm -hmm. It has cleaned up the air in the house. The air in the house is, we had like this HEPA filter before, this like honeycomb thing that the air went through. But with this air sanitizer, the air in our house now is clean. It, Have they it, told you what size particles it part it, it filters out? Yes, micro. I, yes, yeah. but I couldn't tell you what it is. But this this it's air sanitizer zaps viruses. Mic- five, four microns, I think. So, well, I'm sure yours is probably more industrial. I don't know. How are you? No, seeing? I just bought it on Amazon. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I researched it a little bit. You need to make sure that it has a HEPA filter and that it does um, filter out, uh, you know, 99.9% of particulates. How's the patient uh, traffic right now? Do you feel like it's it's um, stabilizing? Is it's it- stabilized, but it's not full. Um, but it's definitely stabilized. I would say it's, it's close to like 85% of what I would expect, something in that neighborhood. I mean, I think people are realizing now that... Um, at this point, six months, what are we, seven months into this, um, you really have to start getting back to your, yeah. you know, being conscious about your health, going to see your doctor, not blowing things off. Yeah. And now's the time to go before flu season. Yeah. Because I think there's going to be a lot of confusion between, do I have COVID, do I have the flu? And mm-hmm. now's the time to get the flu shot. They keep talking about the uptick because of flu season coming along, but I feel like we're all mitigating that so much with our other behaviors, masks and not handshaking, not being around people, et cetera, offices. I would be surprised if flu season was anywhere near what it's been in the past. Well, that's, that, that, that's, that's interesting because people are socially distanced. Yeah, we're doing everything a lot more. to not get the flu, basically. I think that's a good point. I would be surprised if we didn't have a, a lower incidence of flu this year. I mean, I understand them worrying about flu season because some people will get the flu, and that's always taxing on the on the health system. Um, but I don't know. I but guess. here's the problem: I, I even though I got a flu shot last year, I got the flu in January. And was I, it a was it a wicked worst flu you've ever had, or was it kind of mild? It was wicked. That's unusual. And and I and I felt I was like on 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 the precipice of death. I felt so awful. I think there's going to be confusion between what you actually have. Yeah, I'm sure people are going to right away assume that it's not just the flu. So then maybe testing will go up again. I don't know. I did lose five pounds. <laughs> the flu diet. <laughs> Good old flu diet. Do you have people coming in the office, Doc, and since they're with you, they're like, by the way, while I'm here, and then they ask you something completely outside of your, your All specialty. All the time. All yeah. the time. <laughs> like, like, like what? I don't know. They'll show me like a a mole, a mole yeah. exactly. <laughs> right. Or they'll or they'll talk to me about some, you know, pain in their neck or something like that, and and I'll say, you know, <laughs> I can give you my little speculation, but um, honestly, you know, you those are the kinds of things you want to go and hit your primary doctor and see what they think, um, because you know it's just not what I do, yeah. not what I see. Some people get frustrated. Really? Yeah, they want to. They want me to opine. <laughs> well, well, it would depend where the mole is. I suppose. No. Right. Even if it's on their shoulder. They want to. They want to get a, a strong opinion from me. Yeah, your strong opinion is go see a dermatologist. 
That's my strong opinion. That's my strong opinion. We were we were talking also earlier, speaking of uh, diets and and all uh, about sparkling water, because we had seen an article about sparkling water. You shouldn't be drinking sparkling water all day long because it can irritate your bladder. Is this something you've run into? I have not. I can tell you there are a lot of um, dietary influencers when it comes to uh, urinary tract symptoms, but that's never really been top of the list. Yeah, they think, said like uh, caffeine and alcohol are caffeine up there. Caffeine and alcohol are up there. Spicy foods can, can affect your, <laughs> your uh, urinary tract uh, you know, symptoms. Uh, yeah, uh, th- those, are, those, are, all, those are all up there. I've not heard so much about the... Uh, and caffeine, I think we've talked about that it, it stimulates the bladder. It also um, is a diuretic, diuretic, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's going to, but I think the bubbly water does stimulate the bladder as well. You, mm-hmm. I think it's blo- your personal experience. Personal experience. I think, <laughs> like I think right if now? you drink a lot, <laughs> if you drink a lot, I think it bloats the stomach and, um, and it, it makes you go to the bathroom. What this said is the carbon dioxide, um, irritates the lining of the bladder. And so if you already have some pre existing conditions that, that you find you have a, um, you mean like you already have like an enlarged prostate or overactive bladder. Overactive bladder. Like I think yeah. they're a frequency issue is what yeah. they were talking about yeah. specifically. I don't know. So I, I liken it to, to Diet Coke. There's two elements of Diet Coke. But Diet Coke is loaded with caffeine. Yeah, it's, it's caffeine and it's, the, and it's the bubbles. Mm-hmm. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's the same type of effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can remove the caffeine and I do think you still get that effect if you drink a lot of the bubbly water. But there's a lot of people, I don't know if I'm generalizing or stereotyping, but it seems like women in particular, they have the soda stream or they have the LaCroix and they're just, that's the only beverage they drink all day long. It's a potentially, you know, 40 ounces of, of bubbly water all day long and this article is saying you might want to hold off. Well, mm. there's people like that who drink the Diet Cokes or the Diet Dr. Peppers. and Yeah, well that's that's just so much... Um, aspartame as well yeah i think the soda for all kinds of reasons are huge uh activators of you know urinary tract uh activity for sure and going Um, back to your 30-day diet i've read that the um the synthetic sugars fool the brain so that that craving i was talking about you're actually doing a detriment to yourself yeah you're supposed to stay off all those artificial sweeteners when you're on this thing. You would think that's kind of a free pass, but yeah. they say well, it's well, not. You guys, I don't yeah. understand. You guys have artificial sweeteners. I don't get that. Well, in a Diet Coke, yeah. Or a Splenda in your coffee or something like that. Yeah, I don't do any of that. You you guys don't drink Diet Coke, so no. do you? Yeah, no. I do. Oh, you do? Yeah. And, but you, and you have Splenda, too? I have literally one can a day. Okay, one Diet Coke. One and, Diet Coke, okay. and then maybe less than half a packet of the... Uh, actually, Stevia is what I like. Well, Stevia, okay, but... Because it's a little more natural. with the milk, because the milk is as sweet already. Hey, I'm not having cookies and chips like you over there. <laughs> You're Uh-oh. making me feel bad. It's a contest, folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do have a sweet tooth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he said it. Yeah. He said it earlier. Yeah, but I've actually... The, the Stevia I've cut way back on in the coffee. Um, and one, one can of pop a day. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, when I've been on those Atkins diets, they tell you not to even do that. Which is a bummer. Yeah. It, you know what I love? It's very satisfying. Is a big spoonful of peanut butter. <laughs> it's also of what? A peanut butter? Yeah. It's also not on the diet. You know what's a you know what's a good alternative is almond butter. Yeah. Have you ever had that? Yeah, I like peanut butter better. Yeah, but I'm just saying almond butter is substantially uh 
better for you. I used to do the Why almond butter too. It's it's the fat. Yeah, I think it has a lot less fat. It has a lot less, uh, and most a lot of peanut butter has sugar in it, but obviously you can find it without. I like peanut butter on my bananas. I like peanut butter <laughs> on my apples. Are you? I like I, peanut butter and yogurt. Should I be writing this down? <laughs> Take should, notes, ladies yeah, exactly. and gentlemen. I'll get, I'll get right there. Peanut butter and ice cream is very good. Yeah, that is JT. good. JT? Yeah, yeah. No, trust me. So I, you were asking me, I'm going to change subjects. I go subjects. down a rabbit hole. I'm going to change <laughs> subjects. You were asking me, GB, before the show began about my, you know, in medical education, where does ethnicity come in? Yeah, all right. Because we talked about this on our last episode briefly. Yeah, and, and I, always, I always get a bit uncomfortable. Sure. And you had pointed out, I think, after our last show, was that, look, we get training on this because... There are things you need to look out for. Absolutely. And so that's where, I mean, when it comes to um, medical education and the practice of medicine, you kind of have to be, um, uh, you do have to have some understanding about um, ethnic predispositions, racial predispositions to various conditions. So, for example, prostate cancer, um, substantially greater risk if you're African-American. Um, and so you have to take that into account. In and that's fact, a, that's a genetic. That's thing. a genetic thing. Um, yeah, like celiac disease, right? I mean, it's what's that? Well, like any disease that's more predominant in certain in certain heritage. Well, what are we talking about? Well, you just said prostate in African Americans. Isn't that isn't that a genetic predisposition that they have? Um, I suppose, but isn't that? I mean, there's certain there's certain. Um, I think what we're, what we're really talking about is how do you divide up things that might not necessarily be, uh, well, first of all, what's the difference between race and ethnicity? Oh, nothing. I would agree. There's real, they're basically synonymous, yeah. right? Although some might argue, well, you can be, you know, ethnically Chinese um, or you can be racially Chinese, ethnically Chinese, perhaps, I don't know if this is a fair statement, might be that you're not necessarily from China, but racially you are Chinese, whereas ethnically you were raised in like the United States, you're Chinese American. I don't know if there's a difference. But anyways, that's somewhat semantic. What I'm really getting at is there are, so when you say, um, Certainly something like an Ashkenazi Jew is more susceptible to various diseases, Tay-Sachs and things like that. Right. Um, Tay-Sachs or Tay-Sachs? Tay-Sachs. Um, but uh, African-American, uh, or let's say, actually, I think actually Asian... Um, or Chinese, Asian, Japanese, any of the uh, Asian countries, they have uh, less uh, predisposition to heart disease. But then if you go into the United States, it doesn't have as much of an impact because that's a cultural difference. Starts to get into diet. Then you get yeah. into dietary differences. And, and uh, environmental, potentially, where they're... Sure. Yeah. Sure. That sort of skews the. But either way, at the end of the day, um, you know, when we write our histories, we almost always um, start out by saying the age of the individual, the sex of the individual, and their uh, race or ethnicity. So you would say a 
you know, 45-year-old African-American male or a 45-year-old Asian female or a 30-year-old, um, you know, uh, white male or something like that. You would, you would assign that because for whomever is reading this history, it will give them insight into whatever disease process you're building your case for um, when you add in their ethnic background. It's a data point, basically, data at point. that point. Yeah. It's an important one, and then you and start adding may, weight. And it may lean you towards one pot potential diagnosis or a risk for a potential diagnosis. You might be more aggressive about pursuing that diagnosis. We're not equally aggressive about pursuing diagnoses in every situation. So, like, for me, I exercise a lot um, pre-pandemic. Um, but cholesterol is a great example, whereas I have high cholesterol and it, it runs in the family. On the flip side, though, there's also high blood pressure. I don't have today hypertension, um, so that's kind of interesting as well. Right, but do you have a family? You say you do have a family history of, of what? Both. Of, of hypertension and cholesterol. Right issues right, right so your doctor's probably going to keep an eye on both of those that's things. right yeah. but they're always asking for yeah. for that what's what runs in the yeah. family because mm -hmm. it, it it becomes yeah, I mean, sort I of an indication all these things are, are so it's is, that's why i thought isn't it genetic stuff the predisposition to these things yeah i think it's uh, some of it is genetic and some of it is um cultural um how you were raised and stuff like that. So you mean, right. So I think what you're saying is you could be genetically predisposed to something. Predisposed. But, but depending upon the types of food you've eaten and your lifestyle, right. that may not happen. Or you may not be genetically predisposed I mean, to something. Again, but you based upon be... your lifestyle, because you're eating you know, all sorts of fatty foods and sweets, that you're doing a number on your body. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying, like, look, if you had a twin brother who's exactly the same as you, except you were separated at birth, and your twin brother was raised in Japan, where, like, all they ate from the time they were born was rice and fish, they may have a very different cholesterol profile than you. No, exactly right. That's exactly So there you go. I you think have we're two saying the people, same thing. You have two people who have genetic predispositions to high cholesterol, right. but one, because of where he lives, is right. far less no, We We saw that specifically with my triplet who was raised by wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you something else, Doc, in this sort of similar vein, but when you are seeing a patient, maybe you've seen them a few times, you get a sense of their personality. Not their, not the ethnicities, yeah. you know, yeah. but you get a sense of who they are a little bit. You know, you might, if it's pre-surgery, you might be multiple visits. This is or a really interesting subject. Yeah, so, 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 so let's well, talk let me, about Jay. Well, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the thought is this. We, there's probably a few different avenues for you to prescribe. It might be a certain degree of self-care prior to coming back for a follow-up, or it could be something more, you know, that it's going to require a lot of vigilance versus maybe you just don't trust the person's going to be that you know, engaged in their own care. So does that impact the way that you treat Big a time. patient? Big time. That, that impacts it tremendously on so many different levels. But yeah, if you think somebody is non-compliant, the classic in prostate cancer, and this is like textbook, like there's that whole chapter on this kind of thing about 
when we treat prostate cancer, let's say somebody is has advanced prostate cancer, it's not surgically or treatable, so it's it's advanced. But we know that if we lower their testosterone, it's going to definitely put their prostate cancer in a much more slow-growing state. Okay. Um, but that's not a long-term thing. You can't continue that, right? You can't do it forever, but it will definitely help quite a bit. It okay? will, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so the question is, there are drugs you can take to lower your testosterone, um, and you need to get that drug, like, by injection. Yeah, we talked about that last week. And you have to do that every three or four months, something like that. On the other hand, what's another way to lower your testosterone? Well, there's like patches and things, right? Castration. Surgical oh. castration. Well, sounds pretty <laughs> brutal, right? Have you done that? Sound, of course. Sounds pretty brutal, You've done right? this. Yes. I didn't make sounds, that. Sounds brutal, that right? Leap. On a person. Except, no. Let's say you have somebody who is, um, for whatever reason, completely noncompliant. Like you, you saw them in your office. You, you diagnosed them with prostate cancer. You said, look, sir, we have to start you on this injection. You give them their first injection. They come back nine months later. Now they have bone metastases. Hmm. What happened, sir? Well, I never made it back. Um, you know, I, um, I've been living place to place or whatever. I can't really stick around and uh, whatever it is, whatever reason, I can't, I can't keep coming into your office to get these shots. Well, sir, if it's really difficult for you to remain compliant on this, perhaps you would like to undergo a surgical castration because that will... Basically, because you're going to need to leave this testosterone out of your system for the rest of your life if you're going to try to extend your life, that would be a way where you no longer have to come in for injections. That's, that's going to be, and they'll consent to it. They'll consent to it because they know, they can see that they've already had cancer spread to their bones, they've lost control of it, and they're non-compliant. But wait, by doing that is not going to change the cancer in their bones, is it? It is not, but it will still it will, it will give will them a much down. better prognosis in terms of longevity. The guy who he's got cancer in his bones now, but if he goes if he goes down if he drops his testosterone down to castrate levels, whether by injection or by surgical castration, he's going to probably go a lot longer and with less symptoms and less problems than the guy who doesn't do that. Wow. Uh, puts well, a little damper on your sex lot, though. Well, that's the bummer about prostate cancer that becomes advanced is that, um, and then in some cases, even prostate cancers that cured is that that's why men are very frightened, understandably, of prostate cancer because one way or the other, if you're cured or even if you're not cured, often your sexual function can be compromised, whether you're cured or not cured. Well, that, oh, we're outside. Of, so. of, we're outside. Yeah. There's a lot of... A lot of noise out here. Dogs and planes and automobiles. And babies. Um, yeah, that's okay. Uh, maybe they want to join the conversation. Well, I think the dog's <laughs> upset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he already, it already happened to him. <laughs> He's, he remembers it well. Um, okay, that's a very interesting and yet extreme example. Are, are there other things that you come into play where it's just about maybe is that they must come back for... Um, for treatment instead of you trusting them Well, I'll them give you to... a more subtle example that is, again, I'll use prostate cancer again. Some guys will come in. This is where, like, we no longer really live in a paternalistic medical paradigm now. Paternalistic meaning the doc, it's like the Marcus Welby days. Like, you know, this is what you must do regardless trust. of what. Yeah, it's yeah. blind trust. That Those days are over. But there's nuances now. So let's say I prefer Trapper John. Let's say somebody walks in and they and their PSA is inching <laughs> up. And in my mind, I'm thinking, 
you know, this is not a significant rise in PSA that I'm super concerned about this person. I really feel like we could continue to monitor them, maybe check it again in six months um, or even three months and see if it's really accelerating or if it's just kind of smoldering at a lower level. But let's say the patient is an extremely anxious person and they've read up on everything, they've got it all graphed out and they're, they're really just absolutely, they can't sleep because they feel that they could have prostate cancer, they wanna have a biopsy, they're extremely anxious. Their wife is sitting next to them and she's extremely anxious. Um, my threshold might be different hmm. on that person than the one who walks in and says, well, you know, I, whatever you tell me to do, doc, I don't, I don't really, I'm not worried, whatever you think. And so then I might say like, okay, I think we can check your PSA again in three months and see if it's still going up. I might treat those guys differently. And are those the types of patients that you prefer? I don't prefer one <laughs> or the other. But you I, gotta... I have perfectly good relationships with both of those people. I have, I have excellent relationships with both people who fall under both classifications. The one who's really anxious will will have a wonderful relationship and they'll be super grateful that I'm giving them the opportunity to pursue the diagnosis sooner or later as long as I've given them the information and empowerment. How's the relationship with the ones you've castrated? Who what? The relationship with your patients that you've castrated. The relationship's great if they're if their bone metastases have become less painful and they're feeling much better, especially if it's like a I mean you're you're joking but the fact is is if you're like an 85-year-old. Yeah. And you're not sexually active anymore. Well, then it doesn't matter is what you're well, saying. Well, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but because they still could get like symptoms of being loss of energy and things like that. But, you know, if you if you're being savvy about choosing the right treatment for the right patient, um, then you're doing them a service. A patient recently I took care of and I and I really had second. I, I, I regretted the treatment that we did because he was extremely anxious. He had a really hard time urinating. Hmm. He wasn't responding to medication. It was a prostate enlargement problem. And we did a treatment that, um, and, and, and truth be told, he was symptomatic, meaning he was getting up a few times a night. His stream was weak. It made him uncomfortable. Um, and he was anxious about it. And he was vacillating back and forth about whether he should just stick with taking medication and kind of struggling with these symptoms. But he wasn't in any kind of physical danger. He was emptying his bladder reasonably well, and he could have gotten away with it. Although he was very anxious about his bladder emptying, he would say, how much am I retaining? And I would tell him, you know, it's not really that serious, but, well, I want to know, I want to know. And he was very anxious. And so this went around and around for months and months. And I said, well, we can do this procedure and, and you can get off the medication and it will really improve your bladder emptying. Um, well, long story short, he ends up going forward with the procedure. And he was so, after this procedure, for weeks and weeks, every little effect of the procedure, because there was a, he, there's a period where he had a, you know, where he was urinating a little more frequently, it was very hard to get him through it. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still getting him through it. And then there were several times during this recovery period, because I've been holding, I've been handholding with this gentleman so much. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, you know, if I know, if I knew then what I know now, how unbelievably, like, 
you wouldn't have done it. Activating of his anxiety that this was going to be. I mm. didn't know him well enough, I guess, to realize that this would just shot his anxiety beyond anything that would be acceptable. In fairness, he may not have known that either. He didn't either. No, no. I mean, listen, we're all human, and so am I. And I'm. I've done this long enough where I can. Is it getting better though? It is. It's the, getting and, better, and, and there will be a favorable. It's, what's happening is is that those phone calls of really sheer not terror but just sheer anxiety where he'll call and he'll say i'm having this experience i'm having that experience is this i when is this gonna stop what's the age of the patient what's that what's the age of the patient um i think like 65 yeah young guy i get it yeah um he you know and he had had another procedure by a different kind of a doctor eight or nine months ago and and some of that had brought this about this, this these urinary problems about you know, it's just, I get it too. I was trying to be sympathetic, but you know, you can't, you, you, you know, I'll tell you something. You're sitting here and you're relating, but you can't relate. And you're also sitting here and thinking, well, you just have to, uh, you just have to listen and, and really work with this anxiety. But there are some situations, some people who are so beyond the average anxiety that I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story that one time my wife was I was telling her about this is another patient who had a stone procedure and who was so anxious after. Are you able to hear all this because of all this noise? It's just so much. Let's just say it's a fine episode of three men and a dog. <laughs> three men and a dog. <laughs> No, no, it's okay. fine. We, okay. I, I can definitely, we can hear you. Yeah, I'm sorry, um, you know, a little this was a, this was a, This was someone who had a stone procedure. This was a procedure that, um, it was for a, a kidney stone. And I was, I, and I got many phone calls from this person over the next couple of days. And I, and everything he was experiencing, I had told him he would experience. I said, you're going to have some discomfort in your back because there's a, something called a stent inside. It'll be temporary. All these th- symptoms that I went over with him. But it wasn't enough. And so this person would call two or three times a day saying, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And I kept saying, it's okay. It's okay. And I was telling, and my, and my wife heard me, overheard me one night talking to him on the phone. And I literally, I could not get him to hang up the phone. I kept saying, you know, it's really going to be okay. We can, we can, we'll get you through this and we're going to remove that stent in a few days. And it's funny because she was saying to me, like, you know, before when you first started talking to this person, I had a lot of sympathy for this person. But when I overheard you talking and I realized, like, it got to the point where I was like, OK, no, this person's I, I, I'm no longer sympathetic for this person because they're not listening to a word you're saying. They just keep on going and going and going and they won't yeah. stop. Um, that's where it gets really In challenging. Yeah. Don't you give a list on a piece of paper of the things that you can expect as you recover from the surgery? Yeah, I, I have, although I don't always. Um, because then when you say, oh, it's, it's normal that this happens, okay, then that's yeah. fine. It's a little, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I don't always do that because you know what? There's pros and cons of doing that because when you do that, it sets all kinds of expectations. It, it can sh- you can shoot yourself in the foot with that. Um, because then, first of all, then they see this long laundry list and they walk into the procedure super anxious. Oh my God, I'm going to have this and this no, and this. No, 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 what no. do I do if no, I have no, this and this? It's the aftercare right. list. I'm, you I'm, give it to them afterwards. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Still, someone who is 
that focused on every little symptom and everything that's going no, on. No, but then you say, oh, well, you know what? You're going to be bruised for two weeks or whatever it is. Oh, okay, I'm bruised. Okay, fine. It's still day 10. It's still fine. Uh, if it's the third week, maybe that's not fine. And then you call. I just, that's how, it's sort of like looking at a list. Okay, this is mm-hmm. within the, the common problems. Are you telling me that every like dental or office doctor procedure you do, they give you such a list? If there is a procedure, every procedure has a possible. If there's a procedure, the procedures. There's nothing. Not even cleaning your teeth. The procedures have that, that I've experienced when when I had to go under anesthesia or my wife, there was always a. But what a, about if you don't go under anesthesia? Well, what about just cleaning your teeth? No, I don't get a list. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't have to do with anesthesia. Anesthesia is just one thing i mean that's just one component there's millions of diagnostic and other treatments and procedures we do you know that's a but yeah i mean i suppose you're right it's a lot of. i remember when when i went to see you and and Mm -hmm. i got my vasectomy i think you gave me i do give people for that yeah I i do i think the answer to your question is because a vasectomy is so standardized it's the exact same procedure, but for example, a kidney stone procedure is so variable. It could be a 15-minute thing, or it could be a three-hour thing. And so then it's like, which, you know, what are you going to tell them on the sheet? The guy who's a 15-minute stone procedure versus the the, the woman who had a three-hour stone procedure. It's widely discrepant in terms of like what they might experience. So it becomes really tricky to come up with a list that sort of, yeah, well, I, I'm just thinking, even yeah. I, I, you know, I went, look, um, you know, I don't have hair in my head and I went to get some stuff done for the sun at they do, I don't, they do some blue light or something and it gets rid of like uh, the sun damage. But that's a standardized thing. It's a standardized it's the thing. Same, it's the same and, thing but, that everybody gets the same but time. There's a list. These are the things. That's like the vasectomy thing. Yeah. Right. So but you're, I think you're, you're saying on these, it's the issues are I think with for these other operations things. and things like any any type of surgical procedure. It's so variable. Like even no so, surgery is the same. It's not even going to matter because the person that has the proclivity to react that way post-surgery is not reading a list. They're not looking at bullet point number four. It's just not going to resonate. They're going to call the doc, and they're going to call multiple times. But, I mean, I, I think I, I will. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I, I mean, like, I do do it for some procedures, but I suppose I could do it for more. You know, co- common I could. symptoms. I could. It's, it's normal to feel uncomfortableness in the particular area or whatever mm-hmm. that should go away after three days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I or there think, should I think be numbness, or I sell. I I certainly go over all of this with them, and I go over it all with their family member, or their spouse, or whoever it is, mm. um, and tell them they may expect to see this. Partly because sometimes I have to, because I'll often find myself tailoring that discussion based on their situation, their anatomy, where what type of stone it is, where's, how severe it was, where, how, where is it located. And so I'll have to tailor the discussion of what the recovery is going to be like based on the situation. So, But there's certainly some basic stuff you could say. I suppose I, I, somehow I feel like I'd get, I'd get myself into trouble because if I made such a list of the basic stuff, I guess I would worry, and even if afterwards I said, well, this person, this situation was a little bit of a different situation for this, 
then I, I get concerned that they would come back and say, you know, I had, I kept looking at your list and it said this, this, and this, and that, but then I had all these other things too. And then you're finding yourself, you know, kind so of. So I see the conundrum. And the other thing yeah. is you pride yourself on really taking care of your patients and really being available mm -hmm. to the patients. So I, 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 I kind of get it. So, so what you're struggling with is where to find that balance and who with to find that balance. I, 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 I get it. But I also hear what you're saying. I think like I can say in addition to, a, you know, the, here are some basic things you might experience. And you could uh, certainly contact me if you have more. That's always listen. We're always. I'm always trying to improve my communication. Yeah. And you know, even if you do a circum the experience. Right. If you people. do a circumcision, do you give a list? Well, they don't read very well, <laughs> usually. That's <laughs> um, the. I know. It's the. Could, you were talking about the adult circumcision. Yeah. Yeah. The moil. I don't think really. You know, goes into too much. No, detail. but I'm I'm actually that. It's funny no, no, you bring that he, up you're, with you're, the you're, circumcision. You're doing a lot of a, a yeah. adults. Well, the parents certainly get not it. a lot, but a fair amount. Yeah. I don't. It's a not not a bad idea that I could make one up. But what I do do is not only do I give them a lot of detail of what they might notice, but I always give them my cell phone number when I'm done, yeah. and I say you can send an image or ask me questions 24/7 after this procedure. If this is normal, if this looks normal, if this is supposed to happen, and I'm happy to walk you through the recovery uh, as it goes. Um, but it, it's not a bad idea to, to type something up for them. I think yeah. you're right, and I, I, I will think about that. Thank you. There you go, GP. Yeah, my, um, my consulting invoice is in the mail. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you, Doc. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, thanks, for, Doc. Uh, thanks for all the info. and hodgepodge today. Yeah, yeah it's good, though. It's sort of an open, open topic, so always... Always good to pick your brain. GB, have a good week. I hope you're able to, uh, you know, stay outside the aisles of the supermarket and maybe the smoke will clear and you'll get a yeah, run the in. smoke's supposed to clear tomorrow. Is that true? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll find out. All right, All right we'll guys. See. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience, but if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.